I'd like you to turn, please, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And this is where our scripture reading was from this morning. And John chapter 20 is right near the end of the Gospel of John. And some pretty amazing things have happened that preceded. And we know, of course, that Jesus was put to death under Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor. And uh, this was not an accident. It wasn't that um, God's plan had somehow gone wrong. Um, Jesus was not a victim of his circumstances. This was foreordained by God that, that wicked men would put Jesus to death. But there was a, a grander plan and purpose that was taking place. Jesus was actually going to be the sin bearer for the sins of the whole world as he hung on that cross. And so some thought that uh, they, had, they had scored a victory in getting this Jesus who claimed to be Messiah, the anointed one, getting him out of the way. And then something amazing happens three days later. He, he rises again. Um, and uh, this just astounded people. And it, and it still should astound you today. But it was the mighty power of God that raised him up. And then Jesus starts appearing to his friends and to his followers. And you've got to understand that when they saw the one that they loved and the one that they had followed for three, three and a half years hanging on that cross, some of them had given up hope. Um, and, and they ran away. And they thought, well, we're going to be next. They're going to come after his followers. So you have to put yourself in the, in the scene here because they were actually very nervous and very apprehensive. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 19 of John chapter 20. Okay, they're, they're, hiding, they're hiding out and it says in verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed them his hands and his side. He was showing them the scars from the nails that had held his hands to the cross and the spear that had been thrust up into his side by that centurion. The disciples then were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, there was one of his followers, one of his disciples who was not present that day, and that was Thomas. And he has been given the nickname... What? Doubting Thomas. And we're going to see why here. So let's pick up the story in verse 24. He wasn't there on that other occasion. But now, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into, it, into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut. He stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. 
Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So what's Thomas's big problem? Well, he was a doubter. He was a doubter. Have you ever doubted Jesus Christ, what he claimed, what he said? Have you ever doubted that it was true? I tell you what, I have. I remember growing up as a kid, and, and I even grew up in a Christian home, a Christian environment. My dad was actually a minister. But these thoughts went through my mind as a kid. Maybe this is all some big hoax. Maybe my parents are just... Maybe everybody all over the world just pretends to be Christians and it's all a big conspiracy. I was believing in conspiracy theories way back then as a five-year-old, whatever age I was. Um, I, I figured out a little bit later on, mate, this, this could not be a conspiracy. Okay. And, and, uh, but but these, even as a young kid, these, these thoughts, these doubts went through my mind. Well, how do I know it's true? Did, did Jesus really exist? Have people just made it up and put it all together? But listen, as, as I grew older, I recognized, boy, no, no person could make up these things. I mean, in fact, <laughs> the way these gospel books are written, listen, if, if you're going to write a story or, or um, concoct a conspiracy, you don't, you don't put it out there warts and all and, and say, well, even his followers were scared, you know, the, the Everything was starting to unravel. You don't do that if you're trying to persuade people to follow you. You leave those things out. But that's what I love about the Bible. It's so honest. Even up to the very end here, or this, this point, even his closest followers were doubting. Um, and listen, people, millions of people, have put their trust in Jesus since these words have been written, and they have not regretted it. They've given their lives for it. And some of the people that have turned to trust Jesus have been his biggest opponents. They've been the biggest skeptics. And yet Jesus has convinced them that he's true, that he died for them, that he rose again for them. So no, it's not a conspiracy theory. But do you know what? There's times we doubt. And I've run into a lot of people that have these hang-ups. Um, uh, you know, is it really true? Is, is Jesus God's son? Did he really rise from the grave? So we might have our personal doubts and others may have their doubts. And sometimes we think the way to solve it is if I just have a bit more evidence, right? Then I'll be convinced or my friend will be convinced. But that's actually not the solution. So maybe you're sitting here today and you have some struggles, you have some personal doubts about Jesus Christ. Well, I'll tell you this at the outset, your problem is not that you don't have enough evidence. 
there's some other problems. I want to bow for a word of prayer just as we begin. And let's commit this time to the Lord um, so that he will bless his truth to our hearts. Father, I want to thank you that we do have these words written 2,000 years ago, but they're true. And they're attested to by so many witnesses. Uh, And we can be confident that what we hold in our hands today is accurate. It's truthful. And not only that, it is life-changing. You have said, your son has said that the truth will set you free. And maybe there's some of us here today that are plagued with doubts. Is it all true? Can I really trust Jesus? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there a way to know for sure that my sins can be forgiven? I pray, O oh Father, that you would open our understanding and uh, open your words in such a way that it would be crystal clear and that we would no longer be doubting like Thomas. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So why was Thomas doubting? Was it because he lacked enough evidence? I mean, what did he say? Except, verse 25, except I, what? See. What do I want to see in his hands? The print of the nails. And unless I put my finger in and and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas was making it sound like if you just give me that that first-hand evidence, then I'll believe you. And so we may be tempted to think, well, that is what persuaded Thomas when he finally met the Lord. But actually, the words out of Thomas's mouth in verse 28, it wasn't the evidence that he thought he needed. Because if, if it was, he'd be saying, oh, finally, now I see the print of the nails. Now I thrust my hand into his side. In fact, he said none of that. All he said was, my Lord and my God. There was a deeper problem that Thomas had, and it wasn't, it wasn't a problem in the mind if I just have enough more evidence to convince me. And you know what? Sometimes that, that's what we think um, others that we're talking to about Jesus, that that's what they need. Or they make it come across as if I just don't have enough compelling evidence. The fact is there's a mountain of evidence a mountain of evidence to show that Jesus did exist. Secular history attests to this. He did die on a Roman cross. Secular history attests to this. Like There's all these things. There's a mountain of evidence, but in spite of all that, there's, there's still a problem that we have. In fact, just to prove a point here, if we think, because often I've thought this, maybe more so as a kid, wouldn't it be nice if, if you could somehow just bring Jesus physically back to earth again. And uh, if someone was really, really struggling or doubting, you say, hey, listen, just wait a minute. And, and Jesus walks in the door and he says, here I am. Do you see me? Uh, do you see, my, see the marks in my hands? This is proof I died on that cross. Now do you believe me? There's, there's a part of us that thinks, well, if I could just bring Jesus right in front of somebody, they would believe. That's what we think. But that is not the solution. In fact, there was a a man that closely followed Jesus for three and a half years. And he saw everything that Jesus did. I mean, they they ate together. 
They spent their, their leisure time together. Um, there was nothing hidden. It was, it was all being transparent. And, and, he, and this man saw the miracles. He saw, you know, lame people, crippled people, their legs instantly received strength. He saw blind people that couldn't see. And all of a sudden they said, I can see. He saw all these things. It was just piles and piles of evidence. His name was Judas. And you know, Judas, uh, in spite of all this evidence, he didn't want to follow Jesus. He was in it for the wrong reasons. You know what he cared about? Money. <laughs> and, the, and the scriptures make it clear that Judas was a thief. And guess what position he had in this group of 12? He was the treasurer. Ah, probably not a good combination. Thief, treasurer. That's, it, it does happen sometimes. And Jesus knew all this. It wasn't hidden to Jesus. But for those three, three and a half years, Judas followed. He saw everything that the other followers saw. He, he handled, he tasted, he touched. And yet his life went a very different direction. And even at the very end, when he betrays Jesus to the religious leaders, you know what the words out of his mouth are? He says, what will you give me? What will you give me if I betray him to you? You know what he was still caring about? Money to the very end. Even Judas said, I betrayed an innocent man. He knew there was nothing wrong with Jesus. He, Judas wasn't in it because he believed, oh, Jesus is a hoax or a fraud and I'm just going to turn him in. Everybody's going to find out. He knew Jesus was the real deal. He said, I betrayed innocent blood, but Jesus didn't, uh, Judas didn't care about truth. He cared about money. He was a greedy man. He had other ambitions. And so what I want us to see is that in spite of truth, in spite of evidence, there are other things at work in our hearts that um, cause us to resist or to reject truth or evidence. And so the problem actually, it's not so much a problem in our head, it's actually more a problem in our heart, inside of us, if I can use that term. And it's not that we usually need more facts. Occasionally, somebody might just be needing a little bit more information, but usually that's not the case. There's something that's holding them back. And even when the evidence is presented, there's still a resistance. Jesus had already predicted to all of his followers many chapters before, he said, listen, he said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and the leaders there, they're going to put me to death. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. Now they heard these words. They didn't really think much of them. But this is exactly what happened. They traveled up to Jerusalem and at first he was like welcomed by the masses and the crowds. And then the religious leader said, we've got to get rid of this man. Everyone's, everyone's turning to him. But they wanted to do it in secret. And so they hatched their plan. And so these events were predicted by Jesus. And, and so when these things happen, the disciples could reflect back and say, oh, yes, Jesus said this was going to happen. He was going to die. This is not 
um, plan B. This is not an accident. This is exactly what was prophesied. And, and they could see these things come true. Yes, Jesus did rise, just like he said three days later. And so you have all of this preceding this, this story about Thomas. The fact is, Thomas had all the evidence he needed. And, and his, his friends and his followers had said to him, listen, we have seen the Lord. In verse 25, we've seen him. Right at that point, that should have been enough for Thomas. Had not he traveled with his closest friends for three and a half years? Couldn't he tell when they were lying or telling the truth? Of course. And yet he still didn't want to accept it. Maybe I can illustrate it like this. I remember some time ago when I was walking on the strand and uh, Jessica and I were walking along the strand, I think with our family, and I saw these tandem skydivers. Do they still do that on the strand? You can, you can pay, I think it's maybe close to 500 bucks, and you can have 20, 30 minutes of you know, circling around and uh, hopefully safely landing right on the strand or on the beach there. Um, and I know my wife is, is really interested in those kind of activities, or at least at one point in her life. She was. She's, she's the kind that loves going on roller coasters. I get queasy just thinking about stuff like that. It's like, no, thank you. Um, now, what would happen if, um, you know, we're, we're walking by on the strand and Jessica says, Pete, one day I am going to do the jump and I'm going to go with those tandem skydivers and, man, I just, I am going to do it. I, I promise you I'm going to do it. And I say, yeah, sure, whatever. I don't believe you're going to do it. Um, you're a bit older than once you once were. You've, you've had children. Um, and um, it's cost 500 bucks. Surely you're not going to do it, right? So what would happen then if next week one of you comes up to me and says, listen, I saw Jessica tandem skydiving. When you're in Townsville, she snuck out and, um, and she did it. She finally did it. And I said, no, nah, I don't believe you. She wouldn't do it. I told her not to do it. <laughs> See, what am I doing when I start speaking like that? Well, number one, I'm questioning your words, aren't I? Right? Because you're trying to relay some evidence and some information which, which you've witnessed. Um, but number two... Because if, if Jessica comes back to me and says, oh, Peter, I did it, yes. You ought to do it too. And I said, you didn't do it. She says, I did. And if I say, no, you didn't. I'm not only calling into question her words, but I'm also calling into question her character and her as a person, aren't I? And here's my point. You can't separate the words from the person. If somebody says, I did it, I, I truly did it, and I say, no, you didn't. I'm not just bringing into question their words. I'm bringing into question their whole person. And then if I see um, the $500 appear in my credit card statement a week later, I know it was true, right? She did it. But I shouldn't, I shouldn't need to wait for the credit card statement to convince me that my wife went tandem skydiving, right? And here, here's the big problem. And if we can get this this morning... Um, 
We have recorded for us all the evidence that we need, folks. In fact, what did John say? He said, these things are written. And, and what was John's purpose in writing his book? That you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John didn't feel that he needed to bring Jesus to every person individually in every ear and every culture. He said, once you read these things I've written, it will become apparent. It will become apparent. And it's enough that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's the problem we have, friends, that we think we need all these first-hand accounts. I need to be there. Here was the problem with um, Thomas. What was Thomas's problem? You notice in verse 25, look at all these personal pronouns. He says, except I see in his hands the print and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Do you know what Thomas was doing? He was making himself the, the final judge. I'm going to decide if the evidence is true or not. And uh, that, was, that was a dangerous place to put himself in. He wasn't willing to believe what Jesus had already predicted and prophesied, what his friends had witnessed and said to him. So the problem wasn't a lack of evidence. The problem was deep in his heart. And it's the same problem that we have. It's, it's, our, it's our pride um, that holds us back. Here's, here's what happens. That, that when we see these words written, on a page, we, we somehow disconnect them from the person who actually gave them. So you remember how I said early before, I said, if, if I could bring Jesus before you this morning, and some of you saying, listen, I, I am doubting. I don't know if Jesus is real. Uh, but what if I brought him in here this morning? It's, this is totally hypothetical. I couldn't do it. But what if he came and if he said, listen, I died for you. I took every one of your sins in my body on that cross and three days later I came alive and I ascended to heaven. And will you trust me? And some of you are saying, well, if, if Jesus would do that for me, I would believe. Well, aren't the words of Jesus himself good enough? Do you actually have to have Jesus come in here himself so you can prove for yourself? Unless I see, unless I hear, unless I touch, I'm not going to believe. Your problem is not lack of evidence. You're bringing into question the very character and person of Jesus Christ because he's already told you who he is. He's already told you what he's done. And Romans 5, 8 says, God has already demonstrated or showcased his love toward us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Jesus did what? He died for us. You're saying, I need more proof. You need more proof than that? I mean, it's recorded in history what Jesus has done, what he has said. The facts are there. It's now, what do you do with the evidence? You've got more than enough evidence. You say, well, I, I need a bit more. It bemuses me because we, with so little evidence, will put so much trust in people or earthly systems or equipment here on this earth. 
And yet we have a mountain of evidence for the Son of God. And yet we struggle to believe or to trust. Um, In a month, I'll be hopping on a plane and flying down to Adelaide to speak at a youth camp. I'm going to tell you right now that I don't go through this big 100-point checklist when I hop on that plane. And I don't ask, listen, I, I don't go through this. I want to see the pilot for myself. Unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I see his credentials, how many hours he's been flying, does he even know how to fly this particular airplane? I don't go through that. I, I'm going on, let's just say, minimal evidence, but it's enough to convince me. I don't need more evidence. I just need enough. And that's what I'm trying to get to. Jesus has given us enough. Thomas had enough evidence. He didn't need more. He didn't need more. And listen, this is where we, we're, we're actually hypocritical here. We will put a lot of trust in, in, a, in a plane we're getting on and we don't even check it out. We just say, it looks fine. I see enough people moving around. Uh, they must know what they're doing. Maybe it's a bit, bit careless at times, but we, we have this confidence, but it's not based on a lot of evidence, but it's enough for us to put our life in the hands of this other person. We, like, I don't even see the pilots now. That cockpit door is closed. I hope somebody's flying that plane. Maybe it's all automatic and maybe they're just on their joysticks down the control tower. I don't know, right? But there's enough to convince me I can trust I'll get on the plane. God has given us enough evidence, folks, that we can trust these words, these works that Jesus has done. And so for us to say no to Jesus means there's a far deeper problem. There's there's a point of resistance. And what it may be for some of us is we know that if, if we turn to Jesus, if we truly embrace him and trust him and call him Lord and Savior, that means we're going to have to turn from our sin and our sinful lifestyle. And, and we say that's, that's a bit too much. And actually what we're saying, yes, it may be true, but I don't want it to be true for me because I like my life the way I want to live it. And again, you hear that word, I, I, I. That's the real problem, folks. It's not that there's not enough evidence. It's the I problem. We, we want our way. And listen, we don't need a lot of evidence to trust somebody. What would it be like, ladies, you can probably imagine this more, but um, I do love my wife, Jessica, and um, there was a point where I proposed to her and, and I said, will you, do, will you spend the rest of your life with me? And she said, well, let me think about it. No, she actually said yes. It was no hesitation. But here's, here's my point. Every day that we are married, do I have to somehow... Uh, does, does she looking for... Now, Peter, you, you haven't done enough today to prove that you love me. I'm, I'm waiting for you to do 10 more things and then I'll know I can still love you again for today. Is that how love works? Is that how marriage works? Well, it, it shouldn't. Maybe, maybe, it, maybe it does. Okay. But, but a, a normal, healthy marriage, you don't have to keep proving your love. Although, man, it is good to say every day that you do love your wife or do those little things. They, do, they are meaningful. I'm not discounting that. But, but husbands and wives shouldn't be looking for more evidence and more evidence because I'm not sure if you really love me today. No, just keep doing. That's not how love works. If the love has been proved back here, 
And if there hasn't been anything to, to really change that radically, okay, and sometimes unfortunate things do happen, uh, trust is betrayed. Uh, that, that can happen. But if, if, if the trust and the loyalty is still there, husband and wife, they, they're not looking at marriage like, well, you've got to have this checklist of, more, checklist of more evidence every day to convince me again. It's like it, it's love supersedes all those things when you trust and love somebody. And that's the point I'm getting to. Um, it, it, was a, it was a love issue. It was a trust issue for Thomas. And the words out of Thomas's mouth in verse 28, he said, my Lord and my God. This is, these are words of a man who has been humbled and he just realizes how awful he was for saying, prove it to me. Jesus didn't need to prove anything else, anything additional. He'd already proved it. And Thomas was not just bringing into question the evidence, but Jesus Christ himself. He was questioning uh, the character of Jesus Christ. And every time we resist or hold back or doubt, uh, it's, not the, it's not the lack of evidence that's a problem. We're actually pointing the finger at Jesus and bringing him into question himself. Is it possible to love somebody that you've never seen? Well, the answer is yes. Let me put it this way. Is it possible to trust somebody you've never seen? Well, going back to my illustration about the plane, when you hop on the plane, do you always see the pilot? I don't. Not these days. I trust he's there and I trust he's going to fly the plane. I don't need to see him. I just need to know minimal things. And listen, it is possible to actually trust and love somebody when you, when you know enough information about them and enough truth, it grabs and it grabs you in your heart and you say yes. And it was John that said, listen, I have written these things down that you might what? That you might believe, that you might trust. John knew he couldn't bring Jesus to every person individually. He said, I've, I've put it down there. And I've given you enough so that you can actually believe somebody you've never seen with your eyes, but you've seen him with your eyes of faith. I'll call it that. There's another part of your being that can see things, and that's, that's faith or trust. You can see it in a different realm, and you know what it's like when you, when you know something's true, and you can see it. You can't see it with your eyes, but you see it with your eyes of faith. And that's what we're talking about this morning. And 1 Peter 1.9, Peter wrote these beautiful words. I'll read them to you. Um, or verse 8. And he said, he was talking, he was writing a letter to some people in a church. And he was talking about Jesus, that one day he's going to appear. And he, Peter recognizes whom you haven't seen. You haven't seen. This was written many um, years or decades later and there were people that had put their trust in Christ but they'd never personally seen him he says I know you haven't seen him but you love him you haven't seen him and yet you love him though now you don't see him yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory you know what Peter's saying you love somebody you believe in the depths of your heart and you even rejoice with exceeding joy in someone you haven't seen with your own eyes. But you know it's true. You know it's true. So it is possible to love somebody you haven't seen. In fact, my wife Jessica has a good friend 
we have their picture on our fridge. Her name is Becky. And Becky had had in her life some men who had wanted to date her and take her out. And um, one of these men, unfortunately, had said to her at one point, it looked like, I don't even know if they got to the point of engagement, but it was getting close. And he said, no, I don't think you're pretty enough, so I'm not going to marry you. Fellas, wrong words to say to a girl. And, uh, and, she, and she's a very beautiful lady. And so then comes along a fella called Ray. And it was through a friend of a friend. And they said, I think you really need to just write to this girl, Becky. And, and, uh, and somebody encouraged Becky to respond. So it was a mutual friend. And so they started corresponding. And they actually started growing quite close. They, this is in the days before emails were very prolific and uh, there was no FaceTime. They'd never actually seen each other. And, um, and Becky was quite hesitant because Ray started saying, what would you think about us being married? And she said, but, but you haven't seen my face yet. He said, it doesn't matter. He said, I know that I love you. He, he was a man who was, he, he knew enough about Becky. He hadn't seen her, but he, he really had seen her in another way. He knew what she was like and he loved uh, what he knew to be true about her. And so God brought their two lives together and he finally did, of course, get to see her and he wasn't disappointed. And they have a beautiful family and we've got their picture on our fridge. And every time I see that picture, I'm reminded of this verse here where it's possible to love somebody, truly love someone, and you haven't seen them. And you don't, you don't need mountains and mountains of evidence. And what did, what did um, Jesus say? In verse 29, Jesus said, Thomas, he said, because you have seen me, right? Yes, you've believed. But listen to what Jesus says next. I love this. He says, blessed. How, how wonderful it is that those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you know who Jesus was talking about there? He's talking to all of us right here because none of us, to the best of my knowledge, have actually seen Jesus. Uh, one day I'm going to see him. One day I will but I haven't seen him yet. But he says, it's more blessed, you are more blessed for those who haven't seen with their physical eyes and yet they believe. And it's truth. There's some of you sitting here today and you say, I know it's true. And, and, and maybe you can't even explain it, but the truth, the evidence that you've, you've come into contact with, it's not just words, you've come into contact with a person and you said, yes, he has, he has given himself for me and and how can I not give myself uh, to him? It's, it's what we're talking about, a, a relationship, a loving relationship. And when you love somebody, you don't, you don't need the evidence to keep appearing every day. You know it's true. And you're, you're content with that. So Thomas realized, I believe, his great error, his great sin. And um, he's recorded in history, his nickname has been Doubting Thomas. 
But Thomas didn't need to see Jesus to believe, and neither do we. And so, listen, if you are here and you are struggling with who is Jesus, did he really do what he said? Um, I can talk with you afterwards. I'll, I've got the time and I can show, I can lead you to the evidence. But for some of you, that may not be really what you need. It's really you need to be willing to give up your pride, your sin. Because when you come to Jesus, you realize um, some things do need to change. And Jesus talks about it in a word, word called repentance. You need, to, you need to turn from the way you are living and turn to my way of living. And he says, I'll help you do it. But it's going to require something. That's often the sticking point for most of us, is something we don't want to give up in our lives. So, that's it in a nutshell. What was Thomas's problem? He was, he was doubting, but it wasn't because he didn't have enough evidence wasn't because of that. And I wonder today, maybe some of you are saying, I just need a bit more evidence, something more to convince me. Well, there is so much. There are th these, these scriptures are saturated with evidence. And many skeptics have put it to the test. Many. And they said, I'm going to honestly put it to the test and see, because I don't think it can be true. And they fall down and worship Jesus because if he is the son of God, like he said, then, then that means something. And then what Jesus said, like he said, I'm coming back to judge this world. And if everything Jesus has said has come true up to this point and there's still some more to be fulfilled. And if you don't know Jesus, you should be trembling right now because Jesus is not coming back as a savior the second time he's coming back as a judge. You often wonder, why is, why is this world in such a mess? And you say, God's not doing anything about it. Well, he is going to. And mercifully, he waits for people like you and me to um, finally come to our senses and say, I need him. I'm so thankful that God doesn't immediately judge us for our sins because nobody would be left alive in this building. We'd be gone the first time we sinned, but he waits. Day of judgment is coming. And so there's evidence. There's truth. My question is, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ this morning? You can't just flip him off. He's not an ordinary man. He's the Son of God. And one day every one of us will stand before him. And none of us will have the excuse, oh, you just didn't give me enough evidence. I just, you, just, you just couldn't convince me. That, that won't hold on Judgment Day. So I want to encourage you today, stop doubting. Stop bringing into question. If you truly see Jesus and get to know him as the scriptures reveal him, you meet one of the most loving, humble, powerful, gracious, merciful individuals you could ever meet. And it is transformative. And I hope that you will come to Jesus, even today.